All right. Welcome to another episode of Soccer's Is That So? On today's show, I am talking to Mr. Scott Austin from Everledger. How are you doing, Scott? I'm great, Soccer. How are you? Good to be here. I'm good. I'm good. Well, thanks for being on the show. I am very keen to have you talk about all the wonderful things you're doing at Everledger, um, a company which is on the cutting edge of, you know, blockchain and, you know, new technologies. But before we get into that, I want to get to know a bit more about you or the man behind the magic, so to speak. So how did you start Everledger and how did your journey into creating what you're doing now start? So I didn't start Everledger. It was started by a lady called Leanne Kemp who's the well-publicized founder of Everledger. And uh, she basically started it on the the back of a uh, hackathon with Barclays Bank um, and uh, uh, VC out of uh, London. And um, Leanne's background was essentially in supply chain management, accounting packages, asset management. In fact, Leanne was one of my first customers in the RFID and smart card business going back 20 years ago. Uh, We subsequently started our own companies together, bought and sold and and, uh, uh, have a long history together. But Leanne started the company on the back of her experience in those inventory management, asset management uh, world, combined with the experience that she had in insurance of all places, uh, the replacement jewelry market for uh, the insurance uh, industry. Uh, and she really saw the opportunity to, to utilize the protocol of blockchain to apply to objects, the world of objects. And of course, diamonds at that stage, which was nearly six years ago, diamonds was facing uh, an awful um a lot of problems in industry. Uh, basically, the collateral of a diamond was was losing strength. Uh, a lot of the Western financiers have pulled out of, of financing the diamond industry. And she saw that having a blockchain protocol where you could build up this greater trust and transparency for uh, the life cycle of a diamond, um, uh, from that mine through to the consumer, uh, from mine to mistress, shall we say, um, really was a powerful, powerful uh, platform. And so that's how we started. The, the diamond industry had uh, problems with bloodstones, the um, involvement of child labor, substitution and counterfeiting along the whole um, supply chain, hacking of key certificate data, which is essentially the collateral of a diamond. And so she had this fantastic idea to apply blockchain technology to objects. I saw what she was doing and said, hey, I want to be part of that and came in and helped with our Series A round and and subsequently then headed to the US to open up uh, the US market for us. Fantastic. I have a perfect connection with diamonds because I grew up in Botswana where, you know, a big part of our economy is diamonds, but not the uh, illegal mining type of way. Totally, totally. Uh, And, you know, I I think that we we've done, you know, in that six years, we've really brought a lot to the diamond industry. We can see that Um, you can go now to like a Fred Meyer in the United States across one of 140 
of their jewelry stores and you can buy a blockchain based diamond through their rock solid brand. You can go to some of the biggest jewelers in, in the world and now start seeing Everledger backed diamonds. So that's, that's pretty cool. And we're now applying that to different verticals. We probably already have, but everyone knows us for the world of diamonds. Uh, we work uh, very closely with Gubelin in Switzerland, which is the key luxury uh, company and um, certificate house for gemstones. We have a platform that they run called Provenance Proof that enables artisanal miners to put gemstones on the chain uh, from the moment that they mine them and track the life of a gemstone through to the consumer. Uh, we have other platforms that we've run out with uh, the powerful luxury company, um, Alexander McQueen through their brand MCQ. Uh, amazing launch this year of the MCQ brand, uh, utilizing the combination of NFC technology with blockchain supporting uh, not only authentication, but transfer of ownership from consumer to uh, consumer, secondary market use of, of uh, clothing. And, um, you know, we're, we're popping up everywhere. We're doing work in the textile space with wool, with cotton. Uh, we're supporting validation of human rights, of greenhouse gas emissions. And probably most exciting for me at the moment, particularly here in the US and also in the UK is the evolution of our platform for the electronic vehicle battery industry. So uh, exciting times, that's for sure. Yeah, lots of different spaces uh, that you could go into. I'm, I'm curious as to why the average consumer should care about the fact that, you know, blockchain is now being used to certify their diamonds and things like that. And then secondly as well, what made you care enough about this to decide to, you know, move from one part of your career to go full on into this? Yeah, good, good, good question. I think, look, consumers have changed. And let's, let's uh, I think everyone labels that change uh, through the millennial bracket, but I, I don't think it's just millennials. I think it's, it's a matter of consumers now through our digital age are far more informed and are able to make far more informed purchases. And, you know, they, consumers do now make far more informed purchases. Not only do they need to connect with a brand um, style, look, image, um, they need to be confident in what the brand represents to them from a sustainability perspective, from, from a, uh, a really a, a corporate um, branding and, and uh, philosophy perspective. So how do you communicate that uh, as a company? How do you build and maintain that brand equity and how as a consumer are you able to validate the claims being made by a brand and I think the world is skeptical now of single sources of truth of power powerful um, uh, incumbents saying yes we guarantee that um, whereas the world is searching for more distributed sources of truth so that it's validated by the ecosystem in which they operate whether that's validated through certificates supporting human rights compliance or greenhouse gas emissions or indeed whether that's val validated through 
um, chain of custody or indeed peer group uh, feedback. So, um, you know, the world has changed and we've seen blockchain technology now starting to um, do uh, to, to provide that distributed source of truth across all walks of life, whether that's government, finance, social um, distributed identities, and certainly Everledger in the world of objects is applying that to provide greater trust and transparency of supply chains. That's what we do. I Look, I got into this as a middle-aged white guy and uh, really just um, what drove me was the technology side of it. Uh, to be brutally honest, I, I really loved blockchain technology. It was a cul culmination for me of 20 years of IoT, um, RFID, smart car technology, track and trace, supply chain. All of those came together and that's what drove me to knock on Leanne's door and say, hey, you need me. But I think um, what I've learned being, being involved in this organization and being involved with a very diversified group of people that we have, um, you know, it's, it's uh, certainly brought me around to understanding of the value that we can bring to the planet. And, um, you know, I've got two uh, young adult children um, and uh, from that perspective, uh, you know, uh, a 1980s uh, child has, uh, has got a lot to answer for and, and uh, we, we have the opportunity to fix up some of those mistakes. So if we can have greater trust, greater transparency, and through that measure, a lot of the, the output of those objects, the footprint, the carbon footprint, the social footprint, then we're bringing some good to this planet. And that's, that's, uh, that motivates us every day, I got to say now. Yeah, that's a great cause. I wanted to touch a bit more on the value that you mentioned. So there's value in this in terms of the social aspect, you know, greenhouse emissions, mm. um, being socially responsible, but also you have to be a business and you have to be sustainable. So in terms of the value and of this opportunity, um, how did you go about discerning whether this is actual, you know, economic opportunity or or, you know, some value beyond that kumbaya, feel good kind of side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, as this middle-aged white guy, uh, you know, that that's my background is uh, business um, and, you know, the finances and do, does it stack up? And I suppose at the end of the day, if you're running a sustainability, uh, running a, a business, it has to be sustainable. Um, and, you know, as a startup, um, you still have that bottom line deliverable and um, you need to demonstrate growth and traction and you, you need to demonstrate um, obviously um, that sort of financial bottom line. Um, so from that perspective, it's, I, I don't think you can separate one without the other now. Um, and from, from our perspective, when we look at the traction points across the business, we look at the technology that we're deploying, sustainability, compliance and validation is something that the world needs, our customers need, and it's something that we have the technology mandate to deliver. 
And um, sure, we need to make money from that. Uh, we need to be a, a, a business that will, will keep the 80 odd people employed that we, we have across uh, seven countries across the world and deliver to our shareholders uh, um, the, the right returns and opportunities. So, you know, I think that we, we do practice what we preach. Certainly COVID has uh, been an interesting time but what it has brought to our company is um, not that we were lavish, but it, it, it's, it's brought a um, renewed focus around the, uh, being frugal with our expense, being smart about we, the way in which we deploy our, our resources and capital, the way in which we focus on, on particular opportunities. You know, it does have to make sense um, from a bottom line perspective for us as a business to be sustainable. And, you know, it's also meant that, you know, we've, we've got a much lower carbon footprint as an organization. Uh, our travel bills are far less every month. Uh, we, we have uh, now through COVID um, been able to get some good out of that, I think. And I think that's a story for the, for the world, right? Um, is that, hey, we can do this more efficiently that is better for the planet. So it, it's been an interesting uh, year, I have to say. Yeah, no, it definitely has been. Um, I have a friend named Or Vinegold that started an accelerator aimed at uh, creating or fostering businesses with some sort of social cause um, or some sort of you know, environmentally friendly uh, message behind it and ensuring that they become profitable businesses and can be sustainable on their own beyond that sort of feel, you know, feel good or whatever it is sort of factor. But he always comes up against skeptics that are saying, hmm, can you do good and make money at the same time? You know, there are people that are a bit skeptical about that because their traditional notion of profit first or, you know, maybe just finance at all costs and all those kinds of things, um, people have to wrap their heads around it. So the question here is, how, what sort of rebuttals were skeptics coming to you with saying that, you know, might not necessarily work out and things like that? And how did you rebuttal those or how did you combat them? Look, I, I think we, we see that naturally through the, um, the uptake by customers. So, um, for example, the diamond industry is interesting. Uh, we, we see a lot of the major luxury companies that are users of diamonds, a lot of uh, them speaking to sustainability and speaking to the need for greater industry um, uh, compliance and, and action. Um, we see some retailers, though, very slow to adopt that, especially this year. It's been a hard year for, for the diamond industry, with certainly considering India was so hard hit by COVID. 90% um, of the world's diamonds are cut and polished out of India. So essentially, uh, from that perspective, you know, the, they weren't shipping diamonds. They, they were managing other issues, and they still are, as, as we all are. Um, so what we are seeing, I think, is a change in dynamic and then that happens differently in each industry since, you know, it's, it's one thing to speak to it, but to actually show action towards that and to change habits and to change narratives, um, that, that takes time. 
And the interesting thing in the diamond world is that now we're seeing the Indian diamonteers change because they recognize that they need to be more sustainable. They need to demonstrate action around uh, greenhouse gas emissions, around uh, ethical work practices. So we, we are seeing change, which is driven because their customers are the luxury companies. Their customers are the large retailers and those those customers are starting to dictate to their supply channel. We need this information. If we don't get this information, if it's not validated, then we can't buy from you. Um, in the apparel space, it's a little bit different. I, I think we have some real beachhead leaders in the apparel space globally. And we are seeing this major shift in apparel to sustainability, whether it's recycled PET in clothing, whether it's um, uh, human rights. Um, and uh, we're seeing that also supported by major government legislation around the world as well, which is also saying, hey, guys, if, if, if you cannot demonstrate these these key human rights issues, uh, then you won't be imported into this country. So we are starting to see momentum from government uh, mandating some of these things. So look, it's not easy and it, it, it won't happen overnight. It hasn't happened overnight. And it's really a, um, a different adoption cycle in each vertical. I think with, with electronic vehicle batteries, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because you have a young industry still, um, you know, 12, 13 years old, most of the EVBs out there are, are sort of um, are, are that old. Um, so a, a lot of them have are coming to or have come to end of life. What do you do with EVBs? They use critical minerals such as cobalt, lithium. They um, often those minerals come from uh, conflict nations. Mm -hmm. So how how do you one protect this resource, and how do you take an in, an industry at its relative infancy and lay the foundations for a strong circular economy model, so that we can take an EVB, we can say yes, this is where the materials come from. We can validate that on the chain, but we can also say and these materials have been either recycled or that EVB that you've just taken out of that motor vehicle, that is still good enough to drive a household power source or to drive a commercial power source. So let's re repurpose that, extend its life. So I think the um, there's some initiatives through the World Economic Forum, through the Global Battery Alliance, through uh, the European, um, as well as uh, as well as um, in the USA, around how do we how do we really set up the infrastructure for this young industry to have it act as an example for the rest of of uh, industries to follow. So that that's exciting um, that we can we can participate in that. Yeah, I recall back in 2013, which seems almost a lifetime ago, when I was in college, um, doing a, a course on sustainability, and we ended up finding out that um, a Hummer versus a Prius uh, bore some very interesting results, primarily because the Prius or the hybrid car, whatever it is, the EV, had so many materials that were 
uh, power intensive to mine and recycle and all those types of things that ended up being worse for the environment than the Hummer. And I was sort of blown away by it, you know? Um, it, it sort of changed the common narrative for me at that point. Well, that's right. And, and I think the same is, is in the diamond market when you compare the stories on a lab-grown diamond versus a naturally mined diamond. How do you know the energy source that went into growing that lab-grown diamond? How do you know that that company that was growing that lab-grown diamond is using renewable energy? Mm. Um, so I think these are great examples, um, especially the Hummer example, which has now gone electric, by the way. Um, how, do we, how do we take those examples and say to the consumer, you can actually now have an independent basis to view that data and make your judgment based on the facts. And that's really what we're about, is that independent uh, distributed uh, source of truth um, immutably locked in a, a blockchain platform using other technology layers on top to support that collection of data, the validation of data, et cetera, in an efficient manner for industry. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting comparisons out there. Yeah, most definitely. I also don't want to make sure or want to make sure that we don't miss that point that you mentioned earlier on, which is the sort of getting governments aligned and international expansion, as you said, you're in the UK or in the US and things like that. Um, as a sort of startup or a company that had global ambitions, because you're solving a global problem, what was that experience like of trying to um, expand across borders, get more buy-in and really look at it from a global perspective versus a very narrow niche perspective that you potentially could? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, we, we've been a, a pretty distributed company from day one. Um, we have locations in our head offices in the UK. Uh, we have as many people in Australia as we have in the UK. Um, I was in Singapore for eight years. We, we now have uh, eight people in the US. We have our first person in the Chinese market just started. Um, we have a, a lot of resources in India, obviously. Um, so we, we've really always had that distributed approach to our, our business. I think that you know, from, from that perspective, though, it's really a matter of how do we how do we gauge that balance between consumer demand? Um, how do we measure the right industries to start in so that we can build this platform for all objects? And that's been, that's been very calculated and, and, um, and a driven approach because diamonds was an obvious start, high value, um, poor transparency, poor trust. Um, you know, I think gemstones was a quick one that came behind that. And then we've seen um, through natural dynamics, natural market dynamics, I suppose, we've seen customers say, no, we need this. And then that stemmed into apparel. It stemmed into art. It stemmed into wine and um and spirits, you know, all assets that have a relatively high value proposition, but then we're now seeing that come down and we're seeing this mass adoption because, oh, we need, we need this in everything. 
you know, um, whether it's a t-shirt or whether it's a diamond, we need to have this transparency and trust. And fundamentally for us, once you have that transparency and trust, then there's a lot of things you can do with that. Um, and financial services is one of those things for us. And we've always played a lot in the space of insurance uh, because obviously if you have transparency and trust, you are better able to price risk. And yeah. uh, from that, ex that extent, we've started to roll out insurance now, underpinning a, um, um, an asset in the vault for um, diamonds. And that's uh, something that we're rolling out. We're, we're now looking at other insurance models that can roll out on the basis of having this, this uh, independent trust platform. Yeah, that's super exciting. I actually used to work at an insure tech, as they call them in London. And um, yeah, the opacity and the ability for efficiencies to be brought to the complete uh, you know, chain, everything from making a claim to you know, underwriting the asset and all sorts of things there. I think that's a, a huge space for innovation, especially within the sort of fintech umbrella. It seems like insure tech is becoming one of the bigger ones. Yeah, totally. And and like we've had to work closely, just as we've worked closely and intimately with the diamond industry, we, we work closely and intimately with the insurance industry. We're not there to disrupt them. We're there to actually build out the rails so that they can they can uh, operate in the 21st century. Uh, and I think that's something that insurance companies as a whole struggle with because of their conservative nature. So if we yeah. can bring value to them to, uh, to better understand the assets that they're insuring, then um, you know, that, that's going to help them survive rather than being dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, no, that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's a very fine balance between trying to convey to someone that you're presenting value to them versus them thinking, oh, they're trying to steal my business model or they're going to put me out of business, right? Yeah, look, it, it's totally, and that's that's where you've got to have credibility and build up trust and um, work with industry. If you go out to disrupt industry straight away, then uh, then you know the club will kick you out or do everything they can. You have to have a lot of money in the in the bank account and a pretty compelling argument to to disrupt those clubs. So you know we've we've certainly not approach business that way we, we work very closely with industry and we build up trust and transparency and because we're independent we can't do that um, whereas a lot of other startups have um, you know that immediate sort of um, approach to to hook up with investment from one of the the players in the market um, whether it's through their VC, um, arms or whether it's directly um, you know Everledge's perspective we've never done that we've really focused on our independence and, and keeping that uh, in play yeah well long may that independence last until uh, something happens about an acquisition or a strategic partner or whatever it is um, but uh, I always want to ask this before we sort of come towards the end of the show, slightly unrelated, but if you could talk to your, your younger self based on what you've learned, um, you know, working at, at, at Everledger and doing the things you're doing. Um, so imagine the 30 year old version of you, what would you tell that person in terms of career advice and, uh, you know, maybe perhaps doing things that are a bit untraditional or non-traditional? 
Yeah, I, I think um, most people at Everledger, and I think um, myself as one of the older guys uh, in, in the company, guys and girls, um, is realizing that one, be very open to different viewpoints and really take on that there's many ways to skin a cat. And um, from that perspective, it, it, you know, we, we're, we're very collective as an organization for people to voice opinion, voice um, ideas. And, and that's critical. You've got to listen. And I, I think at the same time, um, the, the you, you hear this all the time in, in, um, in start, startups, have a focus and keep that focus. Don't, don't distract. It's very difficult if you are trying to pay bills um, to maintain that focus. So I think that, you know, my recommendation is, would be just keep that focus. You, you, you build your financing structures that enable you to keep that focus on the, the end goal and deliver to that and if you want to have a startup it's bloody hard it's hard work and if you if you don't like hard work if you like to have regular sleeping hours um then don't go into a startup um be be one of the companies that will be disrupted um, you know, that, that's because it is. And I, I think that, you know, Everledger, the culture is such that it, it takes a certain person um, to, to work in the company. We, we're hard on ourselves. Um, we're probably harder on ourselves than our customers are hard on us. And I think that uh, sometimes you can be your biggest critic as well. Um, but um, Leanne's really um, led, led the way and led by example about how to have a, a stern focus, um, the discipline required um, and the work ethic required to get across the line. And uh, we're starting to see the benefits of that now after five years. Um, and um, it takes that long. So... Um, yeah, that, that's my advice, but I'm not finished yet. <laughs> so thank you anyway. <laughs> no, I think that's a great note to end the show on. But uh, that's been uh, Scott, the Executive Vice President for the Americas for Everledger. Thank you so much for being on the show, Scott. And uh, how thank can you. people find you and reach out to you if they need to? Yeah, it's very Scott at everledger.io. Um, just uh, S-C-O-T-T, reach out. I'm happy to take anyone's uh, questions and uh, do the best I can to answer. And uh, yeah, it's been great being here. Thank you very much for the time. All right. Take care. You too.